Hi, everyone, and welcome to the DCRO Risk Governance Podcast, where we're focusing on risk governance issues, learning about the work of and receiving guidance from experienced board directors, senior executives, and authors of influential books that are important for those governing organizations. My guest today is Michelle Wooker. Michelle is the author of the best-selling book, The Gray Rhino, the title of which is quickly joining popular business vernacular as the conceptualization of high probability risks we often seem to ignore. Michelle began her career as a financial journalist, then became a media and think tank executive before founding the Chicago-based strategy firm, Gray Rhino and Company. She earned her master's degree in international affairs from Columbia University, where she also served as an adjunct associate professor in the School of International and Public Affairs. She has undergraduate degrees in French and policy studies from Rice. Among other honors, Michelle has been recognized as a Guggenheim Fellow and as a young global leader of the World Economic Forum. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Great to have you with us. Um, can you give our listeners a quick overview of the concept of a gray rhino? What is it and how should boards of directors be thinking about these? Sure. Well, the gray rhino is a metaphor to remind us that we're much more likely than we think to take our eyes off of the big obvious thing in front of us and get trampled. Uh, it's, it's intended to create an emotional connection. So imagine a big two-ton thing in front of you with its horn pointed your way, pawing the ground, snorting, getting ready to charge. Um, so that's the, the rhino. It's the big obvious thing in front of you that gives you a choice, unlike the elephant in the room, which just stands there and by definition nobody does or says anything about I don't think it's great to normalize that. And it's gray because there are five rhino species. Uh, one of them is black, one of them is white, but neither one of them are those colors. They're, they're all actually gray. And so using the word gray seemed to me to be a great way to hammer home this idea that we don't always treat the obvious like we ought to. Um, it came out of a question I had about why Argentina ignored a proposal to restructure its debt about nine months before its default and economic collapse. And 10 years later, Greece and its creditors actually sat down and hammered out an agreement. And I was one of the first people to come out publicly and say that that's what needed to happen, partly learning from Argentina when I had been running the Latin America Bureau of International Financing Review. And I really wanted to know what the difference was between why one country saw a big scary thing coming and took action and the other one didn't. And it's a bit of a nod to the black swan, which of course became huge during 2008 uh, as the highly improbable thing uh, that people needed to be more aware of, uh, but that was really misused. Instead of uh, opening people's imaginations to the sense of possibility to creating more resilient systems, it really became just a cop-out. Oh, nobody saw it coming. And I felt that we needed a metaphor that, that inspired more accountability. And what was the reception that this brought about? I mean, the, the black swan is obviously talked about, um, and I think the way in you just described it um, is really nice in terms of allowing people to have uh, excuses from responsibility, but then also on the positive side, helping people open their minds to some things that might be possible. Um, what has the reception been to this idea of a gray rhino in, in, in the way in which you've described it? Well, it's interesting. When I was developing it, um, I was uh, running a think tank in New York, 
and in touch with a lot of the really smart policy people on Wall Street. So I had a lot of great conversations with them and they were very enthusiastic about it. Um, it came out in 2016 in the US, um, the week of the New York primary, which had of course never been relevant in the history of primaries before. Um, so it was just really bad timing. All my friends who had books come out that year just had a lot of trouble getting attention. Um, but the following February, it came out in China in the mainland uh, edition. And within the first three weeks, it sold 30,000 copies. And what, when my editor emailed me to tell me that, I had to ask her, is that 30,000 with four zeros? She says, yes. Um, and in China, it just uh, you know, it hit the ground running. And um, there, there was just an intuitive response to it. People were saying, this is stuff we've been worrying about and we needed a way to talk about it and this gives us the, the tool that we need. So, um, so in China, it's been, it's been nuts. And there were, there were certain circles in the United States, uh, you know, financial planning circles, certain policy circles, uh, a lot of super fans here and in, in Europe, particularly in the disaster risk reduction and uh, broader risk management communities. Uh, but it's really just been since January that it's 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 like this this giant snowball turning into an avalanche in the West. Uh, that it really seems to have struck a chord with this sort of twin disaster of you know pandemic and financial crisis. And I think I read somewhere that a copy of this book is on display in Xi Jinping's office. Is that true? Yes. It's, um, Every year he does a sort of a you know state of the union-y sort of address, uh, sitting at his desk in front of this giant uh, bookshelf. And apparently every year journalists go and look very, very carefully at the bookshelf to see what's, what's on there. And a friend of mine emailed me uh, January 2nd of 2018. He was like, hey, you're, here's your book. It's on Xi Jinping's bookshelf. And, um, and that just blew me away. And, uh, and then a little over a year ago, uh, he actually mentioned Gray Rhinos in a, in a speech to very high-level Communist Party officials that uh, was distributed and made headlines all around the world. And people had told me that he had used it in private quite a number of times. Um, but, you know, this is sort of the book showing up on his shelf and then the term showing up in his speech uh, really caught a lot of attention and, and, you know, blew me away to think that uh, that the concept was having that much influence in China. I think it's uh, a great story because as we do more work from home and people are doing their uh, conversations over Zoom and other media, people are pretty conscious about which books do display behind them and uh, what they say about them. So congratulations on that. That's that's pretty impressive. Thank you. The um, Somewhere, and I can't remember if you said this or someone else had said this about um, your book in China, that the concept of gray rhinos seem to fit in well with the Chinese approach to five-year plans. Um, is that a sense that you have too? Is there something about gray rhinos and, and thinking forward five years that um, people can take a lesson from in terms of just general board uh, discussions about the future? Absolutely. Well, I, I think the, the process of thinking about the future you know, what are our goals, where do we want to get, what might happen, is such a useful process. 
And my friend Anne Lee, who's written a lot about China, uh, has talked about how Chinese five-year plans are very, very different from the, the Russian ones of, uh, you know, of older days, which were really looked down on. Um, and the, the Chinese ones are much more uh, goal-oriented and have more flexibility in, in how to get there, where the Russian ones were more tactical and action-oriented. You will do these things, and there's no room for adjusting whether it works or not. Um, and I, I feel like that process of looking forward is especially important when you come up against a situation that's not what you hoped for. Uh, that if you've had some time earlier on to think about it and think about possible responses, you're much more likely to make a good decision. Um, in the Gray Rhino, I go into five stages of a, a Gray Rhino event. And each stage has different obstacles and different opportunities, different reasons why we're not acting at each stage. And I go into more depth on how to act at each stage. And so if you get something that's unpleasant, people are likely to go right into the panic stage, uh, which is where you're most likely to act. Um, I actually uh, did a speech about this in Norway using the uh, Edvard Munch, the scream uh, painting is, is one of my um, is one of my slides. They love that. Um, but if people are running around screaming, going, do something, anyone, just do something. But people are more likely to act in the panic stage, but they're also more likely to do the wrong thing. But if you've got a sketch of a plan set out ahead of time, uh, you can you know, shove that plan under the noses of the people who are, are supposed to be making the right decisions. Um, now, obviously, that didn't work with the pandemic response plans or, you know, as I wrote about in the book with Hurricane Katrina, there was a scenario planning exercise just months before involving a very, very similar hurricane and the people in charge didn't pay any attention to this very well thought out plan. So the plan doesn't always save you, but it's uh, it can be helpful if you've got leaders who understand how important that is to have some sort of idea ahead of time of what's a good thing to do and what's not a good thing to do in a crisis. And I also think that, that forward, looking forward, uh, long-term thinking are so important for companies. Uh, you know, you see so many headlines really lamenting the short-termism that has taken over corporate culture. And it's, it's a big problem. You know, Dominic Barton has talked about 75% of most companies' value is actually long-term. So you have boards in too many cases and CEOs making decisions that are destroying that long-term value. And I was just reading a couple days ago that a lot of companies are giving up on quarterly earnings estimates this quarter because <laughs> they just have no idea. And uh, that may actually be a good thing uh, in that they're starting to try to figure out what's happening beyond that. And by not looking so closely at the short term, you can actually make decisions that are much better for, for creating and retaining value in the company. Well, and I think there are a few things there that um, I want to comment on and, and come back to you about. The idea that an unexpected risk can create fear and then lead us to bad decisions is one that um, I think is extremely important for people to understand. Last week's guests on this podcast were Leo Tillman and General Charles Jacoby, who've written a book called Agility. 
And one of the things that General Jacoby talked about is this need to have thought things through in advance, but at the same time to distribute out the ability to take action. So in comparing and contrasting uh, what I think I heard you say about Chinese five-year plans versus Russian five-year plans, it sounds very similar to what he had described. And then again, this notion that um, thinking about things that far forward can help prevent fear. But you also used the word culture. And culture is something that um, I believe in your book or other places I've read, you talk about how different cultures can respond differently to these fears um, or these gray rhinos that they see, where some might not even be afraid of it. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and if you've done any, any thinking uh, about developing that concept? Absolutely. Well, it's, um, you know, it's interesting uh, that the gray rhinos, well, any, any rhinos, um, really are a, a two-sided horn, if you will, um, that they involve uh, both a danger uh, but and a sense of possibility. Uh, you look at so many companies, particularly social enterprises or, or companies that are using human-centered design thinking, and what do they start out with the question? What's the problem that needs to be solved, and how are we solving it? Uh, in that case, seeing a gray rhino is actually a way to create value. Um, in other cases, if you see a gray rhino coming at your whole industry, if you're the one who sees it and recognizes it first, you've got an edge over your competitors. Uh, so these, you know, the rhino really is value neutral. And I'm, I'm working for my next book on a, a lot of questions about culture and attitudes around risks. And in conversations with people from all walks of life about how they see risk, it's very interesting to see that some of them have an immediate negative association and some of them have an immediate positive association. And it's hard to kind of get to a you know, Goldilocks level of risk. What's the right amount? You know, not too much, not too little, just the right amount, uh, which is very, very hard to see. But but coming at challenges and being able to see both what you want to avoid and what you want to run towards is such an important skill. And we're seeing some of it in the, in the responses to the pandemic right now, at least certainly in the this sort of you know explosion of digital connectivity in some of the conversations uh, about how we might you know reduce commuting all the time that's that's lost to commuting and traffic and the the pollution that comes from that. Uh, so I think people are starting to think about some of the good things that can come out of a situation that undeniably is is terrible for so many of us and and a very very difficult challenge. But you know, they, they, you talk about silver linings. You know, when, when you get a big a disruption like this, it it changes what you think of as possible. And if you can look at what you want the world to look like, you know, a better a better new normal instead of just going back to the way it was, it gives you a real advantage. Well, and that that leads me to um, the book and a specific part of the book. Um, when I was reading your book and I finished chapter seven, I remember emailing you right away to tell you how much I enjoyed that chapter. And then you've told me that a lot of people have told you that's their favorite chapter in the book. Um, the chapter I think is called The Aha Moment. Can you talk a little bit about why you think that's such a standout chapter and why people have responded so positively to it? 
You know, it's such a good question. I haven't got a good answer to the why. Um, <laughs> although, and maybe maybe I do. It's that you know, right now you're you're seeing so much attention to uh, environmental, social, and governance issues, and the book is really becoming big in the ESG uh, community. Um, you know, the vice chairman of um, of Citigroup, Jay Collins, just mentioned Gray Rhinos in a speech on sustainable development uh, recently at the United Nations. Um, at a big conference that uh, the JP Morgan uh, put together, also on ESG, the vice chairman of BlackRock also talked about the relationship between the gray rhino concept and climate um, and climate pricing. So it's it's really, I think it's very useful to a lot of these ESG issues because they are big, they seem unmanageable. A lot of people say, well, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give up my SUV because it doesn't, it's not going to make a difference. And um, I think that we're, we're seeing a big debate around particularly some of the environmental issues of you know, who needs to do what, you know, what do businesses need to do, what do governments need to do, what do individuals need to do. Some of that, I think, has to do with the increasing daily obvious impact of climate change. I live in Chicago right by the lake and I moved here in 2014. I have this, this great video of my dog who was a little bit over a year old at the time. So of course, a you know, crazy idiot running around on this, this dog beach near our house. And um, that dog beach doesn't exist anymore. It's under 15, 20 feet of water because the lake is at record highs because of you know, rising sea levels uh, when, when water gets warmer, it expands. Uh, there are lots and lots of worries here about the, the eroding shoreline and Chicago actually declared a climate emergency a couple months ago. And we see that all over the world with these the increasingly damaging storms and floods and droughts and, and wildfire, wildfires. I have a good friend in Australia who's, um, you know, whose family farm has been, uh, has been hit hard. So I think on the environment, uh, that chapter really speaks to something that we're experiencing right now and that people are struggling with how to deal with. Um, you looked at, at Davos this January and that was the big, the big conversation. Uh, the, the letter to shareholders that BlackRock did said, hey, climate risk is investment risk. And starting to really address this issue that you know, if part of your portfolio is invested in companies that are uh, creating more and more greenhouse gases and environmental damage, that's going to hurt the part of your portfolio that is, that is invested in you know in um, coastal or lakefront you know waterfront realty. Uh, so that there really is a big a big systems thinking element to that. So I think it's it's partly timeliness and uh, it's a growing uh, growing realization that companies need to pay attention to these issues. Certainly, like you know, Miller Coors uh, was doing in in that chapter with its water scarcity initiatives. Um, and then also interesting is it's it's been very interesting to watch that uh, a lot of ESG portfolios have been outperforming uh, the last couple of months, which is uh, is a good thing, I think. And, and I think the story of Miller Coors um, was one of the ones that stood out to me as well. Um, it was a nice discussion of how somebody identified an issue, went out to learn where people were doing things well, brought back those lessons into a knowledge loop for the entire organization. 
and the change was quite dramatic. So for me, maybe when I was reading Chapter 7, I appreciated how your journalistic skills told these stories of the companies who were actually doing something about it and had this aha moment uh, where they may have seen the gray rhino heading at them or at least knew there was a gray rhino uh, in the general vicinity. So I, I really appreciate it. And again, I would encourage people to read the book, but hopefully when they get to Chapter 7, they'll have that same feeling uh, because it's definitely worth the, uh, worth the reading to get to that place. It's, uh, that's valuable uh, information and valuable stories that you've told. So I mentioned at the beginning um, that the company you run in Chicago now is a strategy-based uh, company, and, and you work with executives. You, know, you have people think about these black swans where they say nobody could see something coming. But when you're going in to meet with a board member, for example, or a board as a whole, and you talk about these gray rhinos and this five-year planning or any planning, one of the things you said earlier is that you can actually benefit from this. There's a concept of capitalizing on these clear risks that you identify. Could you, since most of our, our listeners are, are board members or prospective board members, can you take us through a conversation like that? What are the reactions you get and what's the guidance that you give? A really big part of the guidance that I give is um, to flip backwards what a lot of risk management thinking is. And we've seen since the great financial crisis a huge proliferation of risk tracking tools. Um, you know, more than, you know, heat maps and risk rankings and, and trying to figure out the likelihood and the impact and a lot of focus on the risks themselves, but not quite enough focus on how we respond to them. And not just a board member or chairman or even individual company, but everyone around them. Uh, I take a real systems thinking approach to how we respond and why we respond. Um, I've got a five-stage framework. Uh, it starts with denial, and once I realized that was the first stage, I ran out and got Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book about death and dying, Five Stages of Grief. And uh, my five stages are somewhat similar, but not exactly. Uh, but I ask people to evaluate where they are in these five stages and where all of their stakeholders are whether that's employees, suppliers, uh, customers, uh, po relevant policy makers, shareholders, of course. Um, the five stages are denial, which is what it sounds like, and muddling, which is where you acknowledge the problem, but you're kicking the can down the road. You're coming up with a thousand reasons why you can't fix the problem. The third one is diagnosis, where you flipped from why you can't to what does it take. And that stage is where you really look at this stakeholder analysis and you're asking uh, who needs to do what to solve this problem and what does it take to convince them. And for a lot of boards and companies, that comes down to you know, the, the metrics and the value proposition and it's such an important stage. From there, you go on to panic, which I talked a while ago about. Uh, what I like to recommend is that people create a sense of urgency before you get to the panic stage. Uh, and again, this goes down to looking at what motivates people, whether they're motivated more by risks or fears, uh, whether they see change as a danger or an opportunity, and adjusting your messaging to what you think the people are going to respond to best. And then the final stage is action, 
which also is what it sounds like. It usually starts uh, with a small group of people, uh, early adopters, influencers, uh, who start acting. Often that early stage involves changing minds. Uh, but the question is, how do you amplify their work? How do you build on it? How do you add momentum? But then how do you track it? And how do you adjust things if you're not getting the results that you want? There's so many cases where there's a problem, there's a plan to solve it, people do whatever it is that they decided to do in their plan, and they don't come back to see if the plan is working well enough. So this, this, the discussion is usually around these five stages, sometimes more focused on one than another. Uh, but going through this, and particularly this question of what does it take with all of these different groups, gets you really surprising results. Um, the one that I'm most proud of is a workshop I did right before Brexit. It was in, uh, in May. I think that the vote was in June. And one of the people in the workshop that I did went back to London, went through the same process with her company, and she emailed me and she said, you know, what we came up with was Brexit. And after the vote, obviously we weren't happy with it, but we had a plan, we had a strategy. Uh, you know, we weren't feeling completely panicked and freaked out because we had a clear mind about it. Um, so I was, I was so proud uh, about that. And the other thing that I try very hard to communicate in some of the, the workshops that I do and the, uh, the conversations and the speeches is to convey the importance of an emotional connection with what is going on, uh, which doesn't come intuitively to me and doesn't come to many business people that way, but um, and particularly risk risk professionals who are really great with the analysis and the spreadsheets and the assessment, uh, but too many times that assessment uh, gets put into the board materials and the board can tick the box that says, yes, we did a risk assessment, but it doesn't get communicated to the rest of the company and people don't necessarily feel the urgency they need to act on it. And so that's the other benefit of the Rhino. There's been a number of presentations where I've shown a video of a, of a Rhino uh, charging at the audience. And if it's a big enough room, it's incredible to hear this collective gasp, uh, which is exactly the, re the reaction I want. You know, if you envision your problem tattooed across the forehead of a Rhino, and that gives you something of the emotional connection that, that you need. And it's important that all of your stakeholders are engaged emotionally as well. And I think that's really interesting because it, it's almost an involvement in an ownership um, that you get with that emotion. So you talked earlier about the emotion of fear and maybe that drives us to make bad decisions. This emotion of engagement and ownership uh, I think makes us more thoughtful and more caring in, in what we do in the boardroom. So I, I'm glad you brought that up. I really like that. You had mentioned systems thinking. And I have a guest coming on in a little over a month, Art Madden, who has a book coming out in June called Value Creation Principles. And his, his mindset sounds so similar to some of the things that you've said about, about this loop and this process that you've gone through. Um, so I'm glad to see so many people coming with these ideas, and I, I hope it has this positive influence. You talked about early adopters. Uh, and maybe that's what's happening here, is that people are starting to understand the concepts you're bringing forward and he's bringing forward 
and maybe we'll see even better use of, of risk and, and planning because of that. So, um, Huge fan of his work. It's, yeah. it's, I really appreciate you putting him on my, on my radar. He's doing yeah, great Bart's, stuff. Bart's a very interesting guy, and, and I'm looking forward to the book coming out. I saw an early version of it, um, and it uh, should be out, I think, the middle of June. So that's about the time we're going to have him on this podcast. Okay, I'm going to throw a really difficult question at you, even though we only have about two minutes left. And I don't expect you to have an answer but I'm interested to hear your thought process on this. Somewhere else you had talked about this idea of gray rhinos butting horns or competing gray rhinos that confront you at the same time. That's going to be something that happens in the boardroom, but globally right now, and it's, and it's certainly a hot topic here in the U.S., these butting horns of gray rhinos about choice uh, around the pandemic. If we open up, quote, open the economy, we know with certainty there are going to be more deaths from COVID-19. At the same time, we have this other choice that if we continue to close things down, there'll be mental economic impacts um, on people who lose their jobs or their businesses. How, how do you address something like this if you're in the boardroom and, and you have um, a similar kind of choice between two gray rhinos? How, how, how would you advise somebody process that? It's such a great question, and it really is a dilemma. You know, you, you've really got two rhinos clashing horns. Uh, although I think some of it you can get past by being smarter uh, about how you open the economy. Uh, my friend Jeremy Howard's been doing a lot of work with his masks for all movement, uh, saying that once you get critical use of masks, it lets you do things that you couldn't do other, otherwise. Uh, in Illinois, we're talking about how to how to open up, and it's been interesting. The governors come up with uh, with different plans for different parts of the state, with uh, with different metrics. You know, certainly it doesn't make sense to have the same policy for dense Chicago as it does for more rural areas. But what I think is important about that is that there are metrics that each place has to hit. Um, we've been seeing so many of the people who are out protesting against the the stay-at-home orders, but they're out there not wearing masks, they're not doing things that would help us to get to these these metrics faster. And so it, it adds some responsibility. That's, hey, if you're doing your part to reduce transmission, then we can open faster. Uh, so sometimes it involves being much more surgical about your responses and once you do that you realize that there's not necessarily as much of a clash between two different goals as there was when you look at the two different goals at a much higher macro level. And anytime you start to use the word death you know that that framing changes the way in which people process the analysis and process the question. So I think this is all extremely helpful. 30 minutes goes by way too quickly when I'm talking to somebody like you. So I appreciate your time and your insights on this. Um, as I mentioned, um, Michelle's company is called Gray Rhino and Company. They're based in Chicago, but Michelle's a global citizen. And Michelle, I'll just say thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to spend time with you. It was great to talk with you as well. Always such, such a thoughtful conversation. Thank you for, for making me part of this. 